Hey, Scott. Yeah? What were you doing in 1979? Swimming around in my dad's balls. Hey, me too. Do you think we hung out together? Were our dads close? I can't imagine how close they would have to be for the balls to be intermingling, so to speak. So <laughs> right. uh, I'm going to go no on that one, but who's to say? You know who was around in 1979, though? No, tell me. Fangoria. Ah, uh, yes. Our new benefactors, the good folks that hired us onto the Fangoria Podcast Network. What's going on with them? Well, they're doing their Fangoria thing. They've been publishing magazines that have been burned by parents for 40 years now. Everybody that we've talked to who has a Fangoria backstory always has the, I was hiding him from my parents like they were Playboys. Mm -hmm. And uh, they've been doing that for 40 years and they're still going strong. That is true. It is a legit great magazine. The current editor-in-chief over there, Phil Nobile Jr., is a former colleague of mine. He's done a wonderful job filling out pages of this magazine with a number of diverse writers of all ages. Some really exciting celebrity writers have come in a few times. Paul Thomas Anderson interviewed Jordan Peele. How fucking rad is that? But each issue is 100 pages long, and none of that shit is available online. We are here to tell you to go subscribe at Fangoria.com. Mm -hmm. And guess what? We can even offer you a discount exclusive to our KingCast listeners. So when you order the annual subscription, you can save 25% off by entering the promo code KingCast. 25%. That's not chump change, folks. Also, it's just fun to get Fango in the mail. You can really sit back and pour through one of those for a, a few hours. It's, it's absolutely worth signing up for. So definitely give that a shot. Sounds good. Now on with the show. Hi, my name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad rum, bad rum! Sir! I'm going to see a dead body. Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Uh, we have what I suspect will be a very exciting episode for some of our listeners who have been asking for this title uh, since, since we launched the show. The reason that we haven't taken on this title largely is because it's not uh, actually an adaptation. So it doesn't really follow the format of the show to be doing this. But so many of you asked for it, uh, and we had someone we dearly love pitch it as an episode and we said yes so consider this checked off your bucket list anyone that's been uh waiting to hear this particular episode uh our guest today is a very close friend of mine indeed were it not for her intervention there's a very good chance that i would not be here talking to you today uh and co-hosting this show you've read her writing on birth movies death forever young adult and most recently in the pages of fangoria magazine where she also serves as the managing editor Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Ms. Meredith Borders. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. How are you holding up? How's things? Uh, I'm holding up. Thank you. Uh, I have been doing a lot of reading, um, so I, I haven't yet had the, the courage to reread The Stand the way so many people are doing during quarantine, but I, <laughs> I suspect that's coming. Yes. Uh, and another thing that people might not know about you is that you own a bar in, in Houston, City Acre Brewing. Bar, I uh, brew pub, I should say. Yeah, brew uh, pub. Uh, my husband and I own it. We uh, It's a brewery and restaurant um, on the north side of town. And we are 
uh, still open, <laughs> which is amazing. We haven't yet uh, had to close our doors thanks to um, to COVID. So we're doing. Are you doing of, like? Are you doing like delivery now? Yeah, we're doing lots of to go stuff, and then we have outdoor seating only. Um, you know, and with tables like twenty feet apart. So if anyone's like feeling brave enough to do outdoor seating, they can come here, but it's going to be a really long time before we <laughs> open up the tap room. Yeah. And if uh, if you are listening to this and you're in the Houston area, go to City Acre. Their food is fantastic. Their fries are some of the best fries I've ever had. Oh, um, yeah, uh, I got your check. So I'm, I'm doing this commercial <laughs> for you. But uh, definitely go visit those guys. If you're in the uh, in the Houston area, you will not be disappointed. Something else that uh, that our listeners should probably know is that Meredith was one of the early people that we talked to when we were kicking around this idea uh, for a show, and we That's definitely it definitely got got the thumbs up from her way in advance that this would be a, a a cool thing, and and you know so she's been a supporter from from the very 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 beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, I've always considered you two like you know part of the Cotted and uh, you're two people that anytime you write about Stephen King, I'm like, well, obviously I'll be reading that. So I was very excited <laughs> to, to hear you two were going to start King Cast, and I've loved it. Well, all, well, we we appreciate your support. For anyone that doesn't know you, though, let's let's talk about your Stephen King origin story. Okay, so I I first read Stephen King or, or kind of. Uh, became aware of Stephen King when I was like nine or 10. And um, my dad showed me the it miniseries. Mm-hmm. It was uh, when it came on live, we watched it, you know, I guess three nights, two nights um, together. And I was really excited. Uh, he's, he's from New Hampshire, a small town in New Hampshire that had a lot of like for its population, a lot of death, <laughs> murder and um, like horrible crimes. <laughs> so he always felt like it, it was very similar to, to dairy. And so he, I remember him telling me these stories, you know, during commercial breaks and think like feeling really close to him and just sort of enjoying being part of this kind of club. And then afterwards I wanted to read the book and my dad is a career newspaper man who does not believe in censorship. So he was like, uh, yeah, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Nine-year-old Meredith can read this book. Um, He's like, it's pretty scary. You know, you might be too young for it, but you know, go ahead and give it a shot. And I was definitely too young for it, but I finished it anyway. I had nightmares that lasted like months uh, regularly and then years occasionally based just on, on reading the book. And, but I was like, yeah, I I like this. I'm, I'm enjoying this fear, you know? Tell me more about these nightmares. Like what, what sequence or what, what in particular was, was haunting to you? The, the thing that happened to me the most in the nightmares, there's different parts of the book, uh, but it was definitely the, the shower scene in the like locker room mm. is, I, I don't know why it got me so much. I think that's cause it's like, you know, I had to take a shower every day. So it's like, unlike a lot of the stuff that happens in the books that I could avoid, like I, you know, would cross streets to avoid storm drains for years, but you can't really avoid a shower. So that, that shit really stayed with me. I don't know. I've um, been to Comic-Con. I, I've ran into a few people who, <laughs> who seem to avoid showers. <laughs> I remember um, when my mom was reading it and being like in the car. And I guess we were going to like, my family had like a, like a lake house where my dad had his boat. And so if we ever went up there, that was like an hour drive either way. And I was constantly annoying my parents in the car and, and what have you. But I was in the back seat with uh, her hardcover copy of it. And you know, something we've talked about on this show before is that, you know, we were all sort of like pulled in by those, those painted covers. And I'm sure that one caught my eye. It's like one of the best ones ever. And, uh, 
picked it up and was like holding it. And my mom sort of like shrieked and like tried to snatch it out of my hands. And my dad's driving. He's like, whoa, what's going on? And and I remember my mother being like, he's too young. to re- He can't he should not be looking at that. And um, I just like I remember opening the book randomly to a page. And the first word at the, in the top left corner on the left page was just fuck like <laughs> right off the bat one of the forbidden words and was like, Oh, and I like shut it very quickly because I knew I'd seen something I wasn't supposed to see. Yeah. The funny thing for me with it is that the entire time I was reading it, I was like, Oh, I'm just like Bev. Like I, you know, I had a bunch of, of guy friends and it was like our little like crew and we like run around together. And it's like, this is, like me and my friends. And yeah. then I get to the end and I was like, no. <laughs> I've <laughs> never had to fuck like my way out friends. of a jam with my friends. <laughs> Thank God. No, I, I never did. Um, and then I also sort of have like, I guess that's my origin story, but I also have a, a Stephen King confirmation story uh, that I think you two are both familiar with, uh, which is that I really love the Dark Tower series. And I wrote Stephen King when I was in high school. And then he sent me the publisher's copy of Wizard and Glass when it first came out with a really beautiful inscription. And then I'd written a lot about the small town that I grew up in and how you know his books can help me escape. Uh, and then in the fifth book in Wolves of the Kala, when he's talking about all of the different things that Per Callahan does in between Salem's Lot and uh, Wolves of the Kala, mm-hmm. one of the things he says is mucking out horse stalls in Lufkin, Texas. So um, Stephen King kind of wrote my my little town into the series, which was uh, pretty amazing. <laughs> so I remember that day, like when you or, or when you were when you told me this story for the first time. I remember that. Yeah, it is That's amazing. That was, that made me a Stephen King lifer. Like I would have been anyway, but that was such a like astonishing thing to happen that, I mean, I would truly, you know, take a bullet for Stephen King. I would donate one of my kidneys. Like I feel like he's family now ever since that happened. <laughs> You're also one of the rare guests on the show who has actually met Stephen King. And, I did, yeah. and you had an interesting response to meeting Stephen King. Did you not? <laughs> I, I puked. I was, <laughs> I was on so- him. No, not on him. Thank God. I I think I was cool in the moment, but I was so nervous beforehand that I threw up. And then afterwards, I just like ran in my car and burst into tears and just like sat in my car and cried for like 10 minutes. (laughs) And it's funny because I mean, you guys know, and, and, you know, we're all, you know, have worked as film critics and you meet a lot of celebrities. And by that point, I'd gotten pretty used to it and was like pretty, you know, not blase. Yeah. It's always exciting if it's somebody that you know you grew up loving. But I, I've never had that reaction with any other celebrity, and I doubt I ever will. I was just like, could not handle it. <laughs> he means so much to the people, and, and we've touched on this a little bit on the show. But I think part of the reason why people are so attached to King himself as the author, not just his work, um, is because he would do something that I don't see a whole lot of people doing where he would write forwards and afterwards he would write all this stuff where it's essentially like, I'm speaking just to you. You're the reader. You're the constant reader. I'm your uncle Stevie. I'm telling you all about the story you're about to read or about this collection that you're about to read. Um, And, you know, this is what I was thinking. This is where I was coming from. This is what was going on in my life. Mm. You know, when, when I was writing this and I kind of took it for granted as a kid. I just thought that's how, since I was, I pretty much only read Stephen King. I thought that's what everybody did, but that's not the the case. And I think that's by doing that, it's a weird bond that he creates with the people who read him, especially at a young age. Yeah, yeah that's so true. He's he's really generous in that way. And um, what I think is kind of amazing about that is that none of it sort of steals the mystery from 
from the books. It doesn't still need the like magic from the process. I mean, he'll tell us exactly how he came up with an idea, where he wrote it, what, you know, what changed from his initial, you know, sort of vision for a book and, and to the final execution. And all of it still just reads so, you know, so exciting and so mysterious, but he's very, very open about his process in a way that I don't think a lot of artists are. For sure. Another uh, quick little story I want to tell about Meredith in relation to Stephen King is that Meredith was my was my boss at the time I went on that trip to uh, to to Maine uh, for the for the Dark Tower screening and the Stephen King tour. I've talked about it on the show before, and I remember like after we met King and we went into the theater to watch the Dark Tower, I had this like I was suddenly gripped by this. Uh, <laughs> horrifying realization that if I loved the movie, like how could I possibly write a review for it? Because it would look like, you know, I'd been bought off and I'm like texting Meredith from the theater. And I was like, what happens if I love it? Like I can't, I'm not going to be able to write it. And you know, then the movie started and I, you know, I put my phone down and when I picked it back up, there, I had a message from Meredith that was like, you're going to write the fucking review one way or another. Like, <laughs> you're doing it. Like, I don't care what the outcome is. And I was just like, uh, never mind. It's not going to be a problem. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. It was, it all worked out in the end. I'm going to oh, tune up on this bad boy. Oh. And then I also, I totally stole your entire tour, Scott. Last October, I went to Maine for the first time, which was always a, a dream trip. And Scott was very kind and like told me everything that he did and, and how to get a hold of the same tour guide and all of that. So I went through like the exact same thing, except for, you know, meeting Stephen King and, and watching uh, The Dark Tower. But I, I did all the rest of it. And it was probably the best day of my life. <laughs> it's so I don't, awesome, that tour. Oh, my God. It's amazing. I don't know. I don't know if you're a religious person at all. Uh, I am not. But when I because I did the same, I didn't go on on the big Dark Tower Stephen King tour around Bangor, but I did do my own private one when I went went to Boston for a set visit, and I just stayed a few extra days and drove up to uh, to Maine. But there's something about going up to that Iron Gate, you know, oh with the God. bats and the spiders and and shit on it, and seeing that house that I've I, I've seen, you know, in black and white grainy pictures, you know, for mm-hmm. since I was a kid. And suddenly you're there and there's, there is, there's a weird, like kind of moving. And and I know this is going to probably sound super creepy if I would never tell this to Stephen King himself, if I had the chance to talk to him again, because then it's like, Oh, you're like a religious figure to me. But, but I was moved in a similar way, you know, as I am when I like have walked into like these giant cathedrals where there's just so much history. And in this one is just personally my own personal history of kind of dreaming of going there and never thinking I was actually going to be there myself. And, and when, when I went, you know, it was like towards the end of the day, it was dusk was starting to fall. It was like pre autumn ish, like late summer, early autumn. Uh, and it was all quiet. There was no movement, you know, nobody was around and, you know, I kind of had my quiet moment, you know, there at those gates and then a car pulls up and, this like mother and daughter get out and they uh, had made a road trip, I think from like somewhere in the Midwest to visit the house too. And you know, the, she was like the, the teenage daughter was like, you know, 15, 16 or whatever. And the mom was there. And this was like a bonding moment for them to have made this pilgrimage and like, you know, each one would go up and they take a picture. And of course I was like, why don't I take a picture of both of you there? And there was like this weird shared to add to the weird religious part of it, there's this weird shared reverence of being there. 
I don't sure. know. It's, it's weird. It's probably stalkery to say that shit, but it's uh, it's certainly how I felt in the moment. It's definitely how I felt too. I am not a religious person, but the way I described it to my husband is that I felt like the mothership was calling me home. I was just like so drawn to it. I kept like sort of waiting for the gates to open. Not not that I thought they would, but I just felt like they should. You know what I mean? And, and he'd just, like, walk out like Willy Wonka? Of, exactly. A shaft of light comes down from the sky, you know, chorus of angels, all that shit. And it's and it's pretty clear that he that's that's his house, but he doesn't. That's not his house. House, right? I, I mean, I, I know that he he has multiple places, and I I don't think that he actually lives in that house anymore. But uh, I don't think. Well, yeah, I, I think he sort of like pops in because when we were there, there they were sort of on their phones a lot as we were approaching. And I, in retrospect, I realized that like the handlers from the studio were trying to determine if he was actually there. Because I guess a thing mm-hmm. he will do is like come out and talk to the the van full of people for that Stephen King tour that comes by. He'll like every once in a while he'll he'll pop yeah. out and talk to them. And um, now he's opening it up to be. Uh, I mean, I don't know if this is still true in a in a post COVID world, but uh, a writer retreat, right? Um, yeah, 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 I heard that. Which is incredible. <laughs> I, can, I cannot imagine. That's that's the coolest thing he could possibly do. You want to know cool something really? House really crazy is the house next door is even bigger and more grand. And it was for sale when I was there. <laughs> and I like, I did the thing where like, I, I saw the, the for sale sign. So of course I pulled up the realtor and, you know, and I'm yeah, like, wow, course. how much would it cost to be Stephen King's neighbor? And it was this giant, like three story crazy house on this huge plot of land. There's a gazebo in the backyard. There's like all this crazy shit sharing a fence with Stephen King. And the house had been on the market for like a year and a half and was down to like six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I'm like, you couldn't, you couldn't get like a two story house in, in Austin for that kind of money, and you can be yeah. Stephen King's neighbor for six hundred and fifty grand. Yeah, so, this could shit. be Kingcast HQ. You know, you guys. I know the house is probably it's probably off the market now. This has now been three years, but it was a beautiful, gorgeous house. You know, anyway, and I was just like, man, hey, come on, Powerball. <laughs> <laughs> We could take it from the present owners by force, though, if we had to. That is true. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can take Stephen King's house. That's the final episode of this show. I feel like <laughs> You're right. Could, I know this is not the point of the show, but I do feel like we could all physically take Stephen King, just just for the record. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like to yeah, fight no him? Question. I, yeah, would... I mean, I don't want to. I'm just saying if we did, I feel like we would win. <laughs> well, he's very <laughs> he old, evil. and he's pretty, he's pretty slight these days. Yeah. He's just you a know, fella. but he's got he's got that reach. You know, he's he's he does. kind of a tall dude. I feel like he could put his hand on my forehead and sort of hold me back while I'm like swinging arms. You I know, know that's true. Saying? Scott and I are both uh, diminutive. I think it's going to be up to you, Eric, if it comes to that. Yeah, right, you guys gonna are going to have to like kneel behind him while I push him. <laughs> or we can Muppet Man it and I'll ride on, <laughs> on Scott's shoulders. <laughs> wear a trench coat. So we have two two full people. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it's the perfect crime. Yes. So, uh, Meredith, the, the, the title you chose was Storm of the Century. Why yes. Storm of the Century? Oh, I love Storm of the Century. I think it's this perfect King story. It has all of the elements that I love in my favorite King uh, stories. It's got, you know, it's the small main town. I like that it's on Little Tall Island because um, I really love Dolores Claiborne. Um, I love this idea that good, decent, salt-of-the-earth folk have to sort of grapple with the darkness inside when they're faced with evil. And then I've always been so interested in what makes Storm of the Century a miniseries, like why Stephen King decided to tell that story as a screenplay rather than 
a book or a short story or, you know, any of his other formats. I've always wondered, you know, why? I mean, it's a really, and I, I'm so glad that he did because it's really visual. It's really beautiful. And I, there's something I think kind of freeing in that it's not based on any of his books so that I'm not like deep down sort of judging it against something that I've loved since childhood. It's just its own thing, which I, it makes me really, really enjoy it in a way that I, I can't always do with the films. Did you watch it when it aired? I didn't. I saw it. I really wish I had. Um, I would have loved that, but uh, I, I never had. I don't know. I didn't watch much TV uh, in high school, and I don't know. We, I just missed it. And but then as soon as it came out on DVD, I rem- or I guess maybe VHS. I'm not sure. I rented it from Blockbuster, <laughs> and then I bought it on DVD. So I, I now own it, and I watch it about once a year. Uh, and I always end up watching it in the summer because uh, it's such a cold movie, and yes. I get really. It's like the movie itself just will legit drop your body temperature. So what I like to do is turn my AC way down and kind of cuddle up and watch it. And it, it sort of makes makes it feel like it's no longer, you know, 95 degrees outside, which is nice. Totally. Well, it I, is a great thing to like burrow under a blanket with a hot toddy. Yes. Uh, that's literally what I did. I made a hot toddy when I watched it this time. And I was yes. like living the life. <laughs> did you know they spent $2 million alone on potato flakes and plastic really? shards for snow in this movie? I did yeah, not know that, but I believe it. Snow. I know that there was some actual like real snow. Um, they they filmed it in Canada in I guess the winter, and so some of that snow was was real, but certainly not all of it. I have to thank you for picking this title because I watched it when it aired. Um, and I'm and w- what's crazy about that is I think that I looked at the air dates, and that would have been like on my uh, 18th birthday. Because it oh, really? aired in '99 and it aired in, in mid February, and my birthday's February 15th, and uh, and I looked at the air dates and like it aired between and this date and and the 16th or whatever. So I must have seen it like right around you know my birthday. And my memory of it was that I thought it was fine. And the only thing that I really uh, remembered into my adulthood was um, was kind of the shitty old man makeup. Yeah. Yeah. And and how corny that looked. And I'm just like, and that's the really the only thing that, that I'd remembered from it. So when I revisited it, I was so pleasantly surprised at how dark and mean and like just like unflinching about the failings of human beings this the story is. I was taken by surprise and especially by uh Colm Fiore's performance as the lead bad guy. He's radiating some like serious Anthony Hopkins, Hannibal Lecter energy in this For real, uh, dude. in this movie. Really it's just like a very pleasant surprise, like going back on, holy shit, this is actually really good. I'm so glad that you liked it. Yeah. Um, in the intro to the screenplay that Stephen King wrote, he talks about how, you know, this is how he came up on the story. He has these different things that strike inspiration. And for him, what's struck inspiration is this vision of a guy in a jail cell just staring at you like really creepily. <laughs> and I think Colm Viore does that extremely well. <laughs> it's like so unsettling. And his entire introduction to the miniseries is really stylish. Like, you know, those really, really tight close-ups and then the sort of weird Dutch angles kind of coming up at the, the camera coming up from his feet, looking up at him. I find everything about like the first 20 minutes that, that you're meeting Andre Linoge really unnerving. I remember when it must have been a month or two before this actually aired, like they published the screenplay as a, as a book and my folks got it for me. And I remember reading it. And one thing specifically I recall from the script was that he describes Linoja's outfit, like to a T in the script. It's like, like a watchman's cap, a pea coat, 
and yellow gloves with this fucking, you know, cane thing or whatever. At the time, I didn't know what a pea coat was. And I remember thinking like, oh, it's like a pea green coat. And then thinking like, this guy's going to look, look like the fucking Riddler. Like, <laughs> it's going to be like a guy in a green jacket. Or I was like, almost like a Mr. Peppermint thing. Like, uh, I didn't know what to picture, but. Um, yeah, he's got the cane, the green coat, and the yellow gloves. That's totally the Riddler. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, but um, yeah, the, the interesting thing, I reread the the script before this podcast. And they, I mean, they were extremely faithful to it. I think that was sort of part of his agreement to do it with ABC is that, that they changed nothing. Um, so it's, it's really interesting that getting to, that's another thing I think I love about it is getting to see sort of King's pure vision. It's exactly what he wanted. He had a ton of creative control over this project, but he does say in the intro actually, that one of the reasons he wanted to do it on ABC instead of HBO or something else is that he liked the restrictions put on there by having it on a network, a major network, mm. because it sort of taught, taught him to rein it in. Cause he's like, I have this sort of cheap, lazy thing that I do where if I can't make something work, I'll just make it like really gory or, or really shocking and have like, you know, kids saying cunt <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> he's like, I couldn't do that. So I really had to like write my way out of, out of corners instead of just kind of throwing whatever I had at the, at the audience, which I thought yeah, was th- there cool. is, there is a lot of characters telling you the gore about the gore that's happening. Like, that's especially yeah. with the old woman that's, that's killed. Like you have multiple characters, multiple times telling you about like how her eyeball is hanging on her chin or <laughs> yeah, on her cheek. And you never see it, but every single time a new person sees that dead body. And a lot of people do like, there's like three different times where we see different people go, go and see that corpse. Um, <laughs> so and each one of them describes some, something horrific about it that we didn't hear before. <laughs> I'm, like, we get it. I'm sorry. You can't show us ABC. <laughs> Her whole face was exploded, and then the next guy's like, you know, everything from about the chest up was gone, and then the third worms, guy comes in. It was worms like everywhere, <laughs> just maggots and legs. There was nothing left. So I, I'm going to assume that there's going to be a few people who listen to this that might not have seen the miniseries. So I think mm-hmm. that it would be a good idea to set up kind of what the basic plot is. Yeah, I'll do it. Um, it has some similarities with the mist for those who are familiar with that. It's a small community that takes place on Little Tall Island, which is, uh, again, Dolores Claiborne's island. And uh, it starts in a, a general store that's uh, hopping, much like the mist, because there is a, a storm coming and everyone is is preparing. They're, you know, getting all of their their goods together and their supplies, which they talk a lot about storms converging, which uh, I just uh, very nearly missed her, uh, the Fujiwara <laughs> Hurricane Laura that um, everyone was preparing for and I myself like bought a ton of stuff from the store before these storms converge but fortunately they didn't converge over my house but uh so anyway watching it right after Laura I was like oh shit yeah so then a gentleman comes to town his name is Andre Linoge and he starts the film by killing this old lady Martha Clarendon as Eric said we never actually see it but apparently it's gross he waits to get arrested at her home and then the small town sheriff, who is also the owner of the general store, takes him into the jail cell. And then he, from the jail cell, starts telling everyone in the town their secrets, their like darkest and worst secrets. And he keeps telling everyone, give me what I want and I'll go away. But it's a really long time before you find out what he wants. And it's it's horrifying <laughs> what, what it turns out he wants. 
It, it, and it's like rewatching this. Th- this was something that King was doing a lot in this time period. There's there's something about the late 80s through the late 90s that King was obsessed with this idea of the corruption of the small town, especially with a devil like figure that knew everybody's deepest, darkest secrets. I mean, mm-hmm. the needful things is yeah. is another take on this on this premise. But it, it, it's a really interesting way that the, it's handled here because this person this being comes into this town and he's always in full control of everything even when he's arrested like you know there's a moment where they're trying to take him into the jail cell which is behind the shop and uh the door won't open the back door won't open so he has to be paraded through the towns people you know who have only heard that he's this murderer and it's it's this great sequence because it gives him the opportunity to air some of their dirty laundry as he passes, you know, and tells like this person's cheated on you. This person's had an abortion, you know, like you didn't know that, did you, you know, and uh, it's all countered by this, this moment where the deputy Mike Anderson, where his son comes running out and he picks up his kid as mean as he is gleefully mean as he is to the rest of the people. He's actually very sweet to this child. And of course, everybody's on edge because it would be like if a, a shooting suspect, you know, you just suddenly grabbed a kid. Everybody's assuming the worst, right? He's never not in control. There's never a moment where there's, oh, this is what his kryptonite is. It's always just about having to deal with this guy and what he wants. And then the moral dilemma of the story is, do we give, you know, is he lying? And, you know, will he kill everybody if he doesn't get what he wants? Or will will we give him what he wants and in doing so like make the most morally repugnant decision we can as a community. Mm -hmm. It's a really fascinating story. Yeah. And he really gives the hard sell in a way that's interesting. So he sets it up for, you know, for hours as the storm is intensifying and everyone's already on edge where he, he doesn't say what he wants for so long. He just keeps in different ways, communicating, give me what I want and I'll go away. And then he keeps also communicating his power. He shows how he can make, townspeople kill each other or do these horrible acts of violence while he is in the jail cell, but he's, you know, treating them all like puppets. And he's making it very clear that he has this like immense supernatural power and that you shouldn't tangle with him. And then after he has spent hours, I mean, I think it's like maybe 24 hours demonstrating this to the town, then he's finally like, okay, and and this is all I want. No big deal. I just want one of your children. (laughs) And by then everyone's kind of like, yeah, all right. <laughs> you know? Weirdly enough, this is kind of like what uh, that sequence that a lot of people fucking hated about the Dark Knight. You know, it's like, what decision do you make? You know, right. do you save our- yourselves by blowing up these other people or vice versa? It's kind of a little version of that. Uh, I-, I love that sequence in Dark Knight. I've never been on that that side of the-, the coin. But, you know, what's really fascinating by what they do here is is that he's establishes this guy with great power and can do anything. And he's given them nightmare showing that if you don't give me what I want, everybody's going to die. I'll just make you walk into the ocean. Like I did the people in Roanoke, you know, it's like, I, I'll, I, w- I will do all this stuff or you can just give me one of your kids. And I'm not, I'm not weird. You know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not going to kill him. I'm not going to, you know, do anything weird with him. I'm just, I want a protege. Like I just want somebody to call my own son. So then that becomes, well, they're not going to die if we do this. So yeah, know, exactly. It just adds it's a level like, of complexity to it. Yeah. It's like all of us dies or one of, of us goes and lives a very long life with this, you know, sort of pleasant demon. Because <laughs> he is, I mean, you know, he is nasty. He's obviously doing horrible things. But Colmfiora is kind of really civil throughout all of it. Like he never or very rarely loses his temper. He doesn't, you know, 
he doesn't have to show his power by being a, a dick. He's very polite the entire time in a way that I also find super unsettling. Like he's, right. he's got an extremely likable way about him, even while he's, you know, doing really terrible things or forcing the townspeople to do really terrible things to each other. He's intense, but he's even keel. Yeah, and that's that, right. that's that Hannibal Lecter shit. Exactly. You know? Even has a disdain for hypocrisy too, which is something that most of us can relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, and like it, the, he points it out multiple times, like the people that are start judging people for some of the re- revelations that he's making. He's just like, I wouldn't be so fast. To, <laughs> you're a piece of shit too. Everybody's got something they mm-hmm. don't want people knowing, knowing about. Except for of course, our hero, Tim Daly, who <laughs> like ev- all the rest of the secrets that, uh, under the <laughs> right. revealing, it's like infidelity, elder abuse, like hate crimes. And then his was that he he cheated on a, a test in, in college. In college. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Daily. Like, like, <laughs> I actually find that really upsetting that I was like, that's the worst thing you have done. I find that so just like on a deep, deep level, I just reject that. I refuse to believe it. <laughs> he, he he even has a moment late in the movie where he's just like, you know, we all know we're small town. We keep each other's secrets. We've all done bad things. And he's like, yeah, but you fucking just cheated on a test. I know. He's like, <laughs> I'm no different from you. I cheated on a test. And it's like, oh, you're different. <laughs> you are very different. Like, no, that other dude beat up a gay kid and made, like, made him lose an eye. Exactly. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I want to rewind to something you pointed out a moment ago about the the moral conundrum that sort of mm-hmm. where the, where this thing ultimately arrives at is reminiscent of the Dark Knight and the boat thing. But that's like what's weird is there's a bunch of Dark Knight similarities going on here. Mm. You know, you talk about how King wrote this story and, and the, the original image that he had was just a guy sitting in a jail cell staring out at whoever was looking at him. That's sort of the classic image of the Joker in the Dark Knight is after he's been thrown in jail. And furthermore, the Joker in the Dark Knight intends to go to jail, just as Andre Linoge does in Storm of the Century. He gets himself arrested, gets put in there. He's being all intense and shit on his little bench. And then he presents a moral conundrum to uh, the people of, of Gotham or the people of Little Tall and forces them to reckon with their their own hypocrisy. What I'm saying is that the Dark Knight ripped off Storm of the Century. <laughs> Yet another King cast exclusive. Yeah, it, it turns out that Andre Linoge is more Joker than Riddler. Who knew? <laughs> Holy shit, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> that is also true. That's a good point. I'd also like to point out that... Um, while I was watching this, Tim Daly was, if I was getting uh, Anthony Hopkins vibes off of Colm Fior, I was getting like young Hugh Jackman vibes off of uh, Tim Daly. What? Where he, he's somebody who should be, because his character's like, out of everybody in, in this town is is like kind of great Stephen King, small town complicated. You know, you can be a smart ass, but you're also very educated or you can be mean and cruel, but also shown to be scared, you know, on the inside, you know, all these levels of complications. And then you have uh, Mike Anderson, who is just the good guy. Right. He is. Yeah. There is nothing about this guy that that is really evil or bad or, you know, he, he he's not the nice guy that hit his wife once when he got drunk. I mean, there's there's none of that stuff. Right. He's just this guy who is the moral compass of the whole thing. He's all everything. Every answer he has, every situation he reads is the right one. What I love about that and what I didn't really quite remember how everything played out while I was watching it. But as it was happening, I was like. What's great about it is you're shown this guy who was shown and proven to be the moral compass of this whole thing. And 
he's telling everybody exactly their way out at the end. And just through fear, he is overruled and he is the one that pays the ultimate price for it. Mm-hmm. And and so through it, it's a little bit of what I love about the ending of The Mist is that yeah. David Drayton in The Mist does everything correctly, right? He he cares about people. He put he, you know, the chances he takes are all out of compassion and love, and he is punished for it, right? The people who stayed in the grocery store probably survived the thing. You know, the lady that that wanted to somebody to take her to her kids at the beginning, she sh- is shown at the end to have survived it. It just turns everything on its head, right? It turns the typical, the good guy wins thing on its head. And the good guy here, he gets punished. He gets punished in a way that that nobody else in the town does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's definitely a character sort of type that Stephen King's really interested in. So he's got this sort of, you know, as you say, very decent everyman way. It's like, you know, like Thomas Jane, like, like Gary Sinise in The Stand. And the thing about The Stand is that with Stu, I was convinced it would be the same, you know, it's going to be because there's that scene, there's that line that just killed me the first time I read the stand where he breaks his leg and the rest of the guys go off and, and keep heading to Vegas. And it's like, and he never saw any of them again. And you're like, Oh no, like Franny's at home and she's pregnant and she's waiting for him. I can't believe Stu dies, but it's like, Oh no, everyone else dies. Stu makes it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so it is really interesting to see him turn that on, on its head here and in the mist where it's basically that, understanding that you can do everything right you can make every correct choice but sometimes like evil doesn't give a shit the world doesn't give a shit you you still lose um and it's you know it's pretty pretty devastating i think we mentioned this in passing before but this is one of the many stephen king miniseries that abc did back in the 90s they did uh the stand they did langoliers they did tommy knockers they did most of these were mick garris by the way just thinking about like how how many more people were watching network television then versus now, would you like to guess how many people watched Storm of the Century versus the finale of Breaking Bad? Oh, no. I would like you to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> the Breaking Bad finale got 10.3 million viewers, right? Storm of the Century averaged 19 million per episode. The Sopranos finale, 11.9 million. But The Stand, 19 million. 19 million people. Like, if you go look at, like, you know, a, a report for, like, TV ratings these days, and, and they're talking about shares and how many people t- tuned in, it's a fraction of that. It's yeah. it's really wild to think about just the, the sheer number of options available to us now and how that's impacted viewership. Like, a thing that could be considered a hit back in 1999 – is way different than what would be considered a hit today. And that's really interesting, too, because if you're talking about Stephen King's success stories, very few people actually talk about Storm of the Century. Like, it's not like The Stand or It, where it's one of those things that everyone watched. Uh, right. Up. You know, it's one of his sort of kind of, un, you know, undersung titles. But 19 million freaking people watch this live. So I, I, I feel like that is quite a success story. The Stand, Storm of the Century, and The Shining all did 19 million or more. 19. Very interesting. 19. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting, but also, like you were just saying. Although, you know, I don't know that if that's fair. I was going to say that maybe Storm of the Century isn't held as in high regard or it's not as well known. One element of this is that it wasn't based on a pre-existing right. book. Well, I yeah. think that people went into those other titles with so much anticipation um whereas this was sort of like oh cool there's a new stephen king story out there but it's not like oh they are finally making my favorite book into right. you know a miniseries 
But that was part of the advertising, if I remember correctly, that it, the whole hype around it was, here's a Stephen King story you've never heard before. Yeah. Right. You know, this right. is going to be a whole new thing. And I remember I remember them pushing that pretty hard. Um, my memory's very hazy about like what the reaction was around that time. But but uh, I do remember that that was the, the big selling point was like how novel it was that we're going to see a, a Stephen King story that, that he wrote just for TV. I think it's better than the stand of the shining too. Yeah. Like, I know, I know people love uh stand, not so much the shining, but uh, <laughs> there's definitely like big stand fans out there. I tried rewatching that one, like within the last year, maybe year and a half. And it's just so rickety. I couldn't do it. Like I couldn't get through it. I remember liking it when it came out, but um, I, have, with- I have a lot of love for, for the stand. I think that it's got, I mean, I think, Partially, I'm such a a purist about books that I love miniseries because they can include everything, you know. And sure. of course, you know, The Stand, I think does some really clever adaptation stuff and sort of like... Like consolidating combine, characters yeah, and they, shit? Yeah, exactly. They consolidate Rita and, and, and Nadine in a way that I think is really clever. And, you know, they do several things like that that I think they do shorten it. But there's so many of my favorite moments from the book that never in a million years could have made it into a movie that, that make it into The Stand. So I really love it. But I do agree that on the outset, I think Storm of the Century is just more successful. Um, it's just, and I think in part that's because it was conceived for television. Like this is what it was right. for. So they didn't have to make any sacrifices. They didn't have to make those choices. They were just like, well, this is what works best for TV. And this is mm-hmm. what we're doing is a TV miniseries. It's also a less, a less ambitious project yeah. than, yeah, than The true. Stand. Um, so, you, so the production value is better. Um, and and honestly, you just have a better villain. I mean, I mean, the guy that Randall Flagg is one of the all time great Stephen King villains. And, you know, and I don't have a real huge issue with the guy that played him, but he just played him as like, you know, your fucking your asshole stepdad. Right. It's like he actually you know, is my biggest problem with the stand. He he just doesn't work. He's just like too wisecracking. And, and yeah, really, uh, but Colmvior, like, man, he would have been a good flag. You know, he's so good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, he radiates a power. There, there isn't like that great powerhouse performance. And there's lots of really great actors in, in the stand, you know, but there isn't that, you know, the, the powerhouse, uh, like just draw you in and like you're hanging on their every word, you know, kind of performance that we get from Comfy in in this one. Right. I do want to ask Eric a question. You're saying Comfy mm-hmm. I've always called him Comfy Am I making Comfy more exotic than he needs to be? I mean, it does sound sexy when you say it like that. Yeah, Confiore is like a cologne. <laughs> you know, there's like flames and a panther when Confiore walks into a room. But Confiore, uh, do I you do know? That's how Udo Kier would say it. How, <laughs> Udo. We should uh, say everything the way Udo Kier would say it. <laughs> how are you saying it, Meredith? I say Confiore as well. Okay. Okay, well, we'll never know. We'll get him on the show at some point. Yes, <laughs> just to, <laughs> how do It'll you pronounce a, your name? Yeah, 10 second podcast. <laughs> it's like, cool, that was the only question we had for you. Thanks, sir. <laughs> um, it, the, the point I was originally making was that this miniseries is maybe not as beloved as something like The Stand or like the It miniseries, to use a better example than The Shining. But I don't know if that's entirely true because we've had more requests for a storm of the century episode than we've had any requests, frankly, for an it mini series episode or that's really interesting or the stand. Like I, we've heard a few, like I would say half the number of people that have asked for 
storm of the century of S for the stand. And the thing with the stand is I think, you know, we're just going to have to get a guest on to do that. Who's really fucking committed. That's like a, a six hour thing. And then there's like a thousand page book to go right. along with it. You know, I, I think it's a big buy-in. Someone's got to be a real deep nerd to do that one. But still like um, storm of the century is maybe one of our, maybe our most requested title that I've seen. Eric, would you say that, that, that that's accurate? Have you seen requests yeah. for something more than this one? Um, I think what what happens is a lot of people go, "Oh, it's really cool." Everybody talks about it and The Shining and Carrie, like, but nobody talks about this one thing that I feel very personal, you know, affection to. Sure. So it's a little bit of the indie band, you know, thing. Yeah. Uh, but yes, we have had a lot of Storm of the Century and a lot of the It miniseries as well. I think it's just because. Those miniseries, the the early to late '90s miniseries, were such huge deals, right? They they were whether you read the books or watched movies or whatever, you know that that was usually kind of a personal thing to you. You per, you know just mm-hmm. locked yourself in your room and read a book, or you you know rented a movie and and you know and watched it that way. But when it and the stand and even the shining and storm of the century when they came around, those were water cooler topics. You know yeah. that that was the age where something playing on prime time like that, as you noted with the numbers, it, it became a cultural thing. My family sat down to watch it on both nights. Right? Yeah. It became a family thing. And and I think that, you know, like, uh, you know, Meredith said earlier when she was talking about bonding with her dad, watching it, you know, that there's that extra level of connection to those, those things, even if they don't really hold up now, kind of looking back at, at you know, production value or acting or whatever. Um, you're always going to have those memories and those, those deep personal connections to those times watching it. Yeah, I think that's true. They were, they were very much event television. And, and I, I mean, even though I didn't end up seeing storm of the century when it was live, I, I do remember people talking about it. I remember it being a thing. Scott, that's so cool that your parents bought you the screenplay before it came out. I didn't, I didn't realize it was available that way, but I really like that, that it was, you know, because that's, it's sort of like, I remember I would, I guess I'd buy lyric books for albums before the album came out because I just wanted to know all the lyrics before the song came out. But I like that you did that with, with Storm of the Century. <laughs> well, my I think my parents knew, like, that was in probably, like, the height of my, like, film nerd shit. Like, from Pulp Fiction, that yeah. from Pulp Fiction to the next 10 years was, like, me at the height of that shit. And I, rem- I remember, like, um, going to, uh, there was a website called uh, Drew's Scriptorama. Yeah, and they had like <laughs> all these fucking screenplays, right? And I would print them out on our printer at home. Um, you know, Go like through hundreds two- of dollars in ink. <laughs> yeah, That's what yeah. they bought it for you. They were like, "This is going to be a four-hour miniseries. You were not printing this shit out." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, they were not amused. I, I ran out a number of uh, ink cartridges back in the day, but did you? I, I know that Eric said he watched it live, but did you watch it live? I did. And I had an interesting moment this morning where I was, I was looking, just doing basic research, you know, for this episode. And I saw that it aired, um, it started on Valentine's Day in 1999. And I thought to myself, like, I have a, I have a very strong memory of seeing this, like in my living room at home. But also during that time, I would have been at military school. So this doesn't really add up. That must be a false memory. And then it took like an hour for me to remember that I got kicked out of military school. So I fucking, I must have seen this like probably within a month or two of getting the boot from that oh, place. I kicked out just in time to watch Storm of the Century. That's lucky. 
I meant to do that all along. That was Love all that. part of my plan. <laughs> Four years down the toilet so I could watch this ABC miniseries. <laughs> but um, I, I do like this. I, I, I like this one a lot. I like it more now than I think I did at the time even. And yeah, I same. think that it's just better directed than a lot of the ABC miniseries stuff. It's really stylish. Like there's a, a lot of decisions that Craig Baxley makes that it's like, I wouldn't have, you know, not just the Stephen King miniseries, but any miniseries at the time, television yeah, yeah. was just not doing a lot of really interesting visual stuff. It was just tell the story and that's it, you know? And he, he gets really sort of weird with the camera in this in a way that I think serves it very, very well and, and super holds up. I agree. And, and in the intro to the screenplay that I was reading, Stephen King talks about how he, he wanted to work with Mick Garris because he's a friend of his and he's, he liked sort of Garris's kind of fidelity to his material, but Mick was not available. And then he was trying, he already, you know, knew that he was going to be doing this miniseries and, and had the agreement with ABC and was an executive producer. And so it would be making a decision on the director. And then he was watching a movie called Twilight Man and really liked the way it was done, really liked the style of it, so that he found it very eye-catching. And then also there were characters in there that reminded him of characters from Storm of the Century. Like there were performances. There was a, a Tim Daly type character and there was a Colm Fjord character basically in Twilight Man, which I've never seen. And that's directed by Baxley. And so when he found that out, he brought him on for that reason. Huh. I don't I didn't know much about this Craig Baxley character. He did Action Jackson. Action Jackson, exactly. Like, holy shit. He did a bunch of King because <laughs> he did Kingdom Hospital and Diary of Ellen Rimbauer uh, and Rose Red. He did some episodes of that. But the really interesting thing is that uh, according to IMDb, he isn't pre-pro on The Gingerbread Girl. Oh, really? Yeah. Which I had heard nothing about. For all we know, this is like a, right. <laughs> you know, the IMDb is not the most... Uh, reliable source of information. Well, on and especially the in, in 2020 when everything. Yeah, no, shit. Yes. Um, but he was a stunt driver for years and years and years. Yeah, he he was a stunt driver on like Dukes of Hazard and shit, which is I think the coolest thing you can do. I think that <laughs> being a stunt driver is literally the coolest credit anyone can have to their name. So I just like him for that. And Starsky and Hutch, mm-hmm. and also Kolchak, the Night Stalker. He was a stunt mm-hmm. coordinator on. This guy has a wild career, man. Yeah, I'm pretty into it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys uh, like recognize the? Uh, or I guess you wouldn't really recognize him, but it, I don't know if you looked into the the kid who played Jeffrey Demond's like asshole oh, bully Donnie. kid. He's Abigail Breslin's brother, right? Right, Spencer Breslin. Yeah, he's yeah, Abigail, yeah. Abigail Breslin's older brother. Yeah. Oh, um, I'm glad that you bring this up, Eric, because. As much as I love Storm of the Century, I do want to say that I think its biggest failing is that it does not make you give a shit about these kids. They are not compelling <laughs> at all. They're, they're kind of annoying, frankly. And they're really annoying, and that's definitely where they skimped. Like, these don't feel like seasoned pro actors, you know? And you can't, I think you should absolutely not be skimping on the children for this particular story because obviously the entire crux of the narrative rests on them. And also because King writes kids so well. Like, like, hmm. mm-hmm. you know, if I read any of his stories and there's a child in it, I always give a shit about that child. Like most recently, right. the Institute. I loved the right. Institute. I thought that was so well written. All of the kids stuff. I was like, yes, all of these kids are so cool. And I think that this man, man, this miniseries really fails on that. I, I kind of hate all of the kids, especially. <laughs> You're right. Um, I do think that Ralphie, um, Mike's kid is the best, but he's still only 
very so-so. Pippa, I don't give a shit. Like, you know, like yeah, it's <laughs> fine. You can, you can drop all those kids. I don't mind. <laughs> that's that's the kids a real should, problem. Right? They should be the most sympathetic people in the entire story for, right. you know, that ending to really hit uh, as hard as it does. And it's not. And in fact, in, on the rewatch, I was just outraged at a scene in the, uh, in the first, I guess you'd call it episode. There's three installments. Uh, where the kid has her head caught between the banister or the uh-huh. is it yeah the, the banister yeah the railing, uh, whatever yeah the little posts on a staircase and it's ridiculous dude like her head is smaller like you could just meh, you can mush <laughs> her face backwards and she would come out of that fucking staircase that and then also this- makes me not really crazy about Mike's wife right off the bat. Uh, Molly Anderson, because she's like, here he is. He's running the store before a storm. He's also the town constable. So he's like very responsible for a ton of preparation for the storm. And she's like babysitting these kids. And she calls him to come home to help with this not problem. It drives me. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, That's what Amy said while we were watching it. She's like, she needed a man to do that. I know. Like, it's like, come on, girl. Like, you got this. He's busy. <laughs> he was the only one who knew where the, the shrinking button was. Yeah, the the small anemone button. <laughs> yeah. the small it's anemone. so ridiculous. It's like if I put my hand in a microwave and I was like, oh, I can't get it out. You'd be like, put your fucking hand out of the microwave. That's how you <laughs> fix it. A kid is grounded. Yeah. Fuck you, Pippa. Yeah, I don't really like any of those kids, to be honest. They, they all yeah, I I looked up uh, the the girl who played Pippa died like real young too. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, so oh, we're, we're 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 smack talking this poor girl, right. and I think yeah, she she like Meredith's she like, like OD'd Pippa. when she was in her early twenties. Yeah. I really wish you hadn't told me that. <laughs> like, I, you say it seconds after I say the words "fuck you, Pippa." I feel really bad about that. <laughs> uh, I, I just I, I just wanted you to feel as bad as you possibly could. <laughs> I, you, you succeeded. <laughs> oh man, uh, that but was you're. Good. <laughs> but you're, you're exactly right. Like it's something I never really thought about, but you know, cause one thing that I really enjoyed about the setup of the kids that he introduced is that he gives you the one out, right? It's like, everybody should have just been like, yeah, take the fucking asshole bully kid. Like that's Donnie. been a dick this yeah. whole time. Yeah. Take, take this kid. You know, all the other kids are just like generic, sweet, helpful kids. And then, you know, you have this one kid who's going to, you know, grow up to, you know, roofie a girl in college, you know, it's like, that's, <laughs> you know, you have that guy. It's like, yeah, let's just take that one. And he's not the one that, that gets, you know, chosen through, through the, the weirding stone ritual okay. or whatever. So that's interesting. And I'm glad you brought it up because I think that whole thing was a setup. Oh, uh, for sure. Lenin oh, yeah. is obsessed with Ralphie from like from jump. He's, he's zeroed in on him. Like this has clearly always been a setup. And when he says, Oh, these weirding stones. Like, I, I guarantee you that this is not a trick. Like, this is absolutely like a sacred ritual. The, you know, the series, the story makes it clear that he's lying about that because it's very, very obvious that it's a setup that he's been preoccupied with Ralphie since the beginning, which yeah. means you can't trust anything he says at all, mm-hmm. which also means that Anderson is right. You know, you don't, you can't believe him that he actually has the power or will intends to kill the entire town if they don't give him what he wants. And if he could do that, then he didn't need to give the hard sell from the beginning, you know? So I think, I think the movie, you know, it's this really complex moral issue, but I, I think they're very, and it's, it remains ambiguous to the end. It doesn't spell anything out, but I do think reading between the lines, there's definitely a right and a wrong. There's like, Mm -hmm. it's not one of those things where it's like, Oh, none of the choices look good. There is one choice that, the movie makes or the miniseries makes very clear is the correct answer. And it's yeah. only, only Mike Anderson 
you know, chooses correctly, everyone else is wrong. It's really interesting. I think super well done. I love it. It's like, you know, a, a lot of Stephen King stuff is, I don't know, it, it's complicated in a way that sometimes his endings are not. Like, it's got a real interesting moral complexity to it. But also there is still that sort of very, very clear right and wrong that runs through all of his stuff. Right. It's I also mean, interesting he slapped an ending this dark onto an ABC miniseries. Yeah, you know? and it's it's like pre it predates the mist by, you know, quite a bit. And everyone was so, so shocked and, and blown away by that ending for the mist, but he already did it. You know, he already kind of pulled out all the punches and went balls to the wall with this with this story in a way that the mist is you know, it's really similar, but and I guess the mist mm. is I don't know, which do you think is darker ending wise? The mist. Oh, yeah. the mist. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it's definitely darker for for the father character, you know, because at right. least this one did everything he could to stop it. He, he has to have kind of the survivor's guilt that David Drayton, I'm sure, had to deal with later. But he ne- he wasn't the one who pulled the trigger. He could blame always blame his wife, you know, and for agreeing to go in the narration at the end. He's like, I have the the peace of mind. So it's like he he knows that he's fine. Like he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I did everything right. I, I could. Yeah, they, they there is a coda at the end where like he moves to to San Francisco and he uh, sees his son and Linoge uh, together and uh, like spots him and is like has that moment where he calls out for him and the kid now a teenager turns around and fucking hisses with that demon mouth that <laughs> that Colm Fior you know has shown a couple of times. It, it, what do you think is worse for him that he? has that question of, of what his, like, what is his son becoming like in his mind, you know, and then seeing it, or do do you think it would have been worse for him to have never seen him and always had that be a question versus seeing, you know, that his worst fears were probably coming true with, uh, with what he was becoming. I think it's definitely worse for him than he sees him. And I think that's intentional. I think Linoj doesn't want him to have that peace of mind. So he just like shows up and fucks with him one last time where he's like, yeah, uh, because I think until that moment where he saw him on the street, he could tell himself that he's still Ralphie, that, you know, he had enough integrity to stay true to himself the way Anderson probably would have if, because he's the guy who the worst thing he's ever done is cheat on a test. So he can like convince himself that, Oh, you know, no matter what, Linoj can't steal Ralphie's ultimate humanity. And then he it's thrown in his face that actually he can't. <laughs> right. I think it's the opposite, but for similar reasons. I think it's better that he see the kid and see the kid's been like fully taken over. He's got the demon mouth and the hissing and what have you. (laughs) Like there's no doubt now that that kid is no longer his kid. And I think that the peace of mind would come from knowing like, well, whatever that is, that ain't Ralphie, you know, versus the, the not knowing. I think not knowing is always the worst case scenario. Yeah, I get that. Uh, Something for us all to think about. If we ever have to (laughs) sacrifice our children to, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to this is why name. I don't have children. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think it's funny. I think it's interesting in in the you know the scene in the town hall where Mike tries to say, "Okay, only the parents can can vote on this." Then, which makes sense to me. But I also think it's really interesting the mother who's like, "No, I don't want to make this decision alone. Like everyone has to weigh in on it." What do you guys think about that? I would be at the front, like assuming I don't have kids in the scenario. Yeah. I'd be like. No, I want to vote because I still have to live with these kids on this fucking island, and I don't know which one is more annoying than the others. You know? <laughs> right. like, can we vote on Donnie? Can we? Like, can we <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can we choose like, four winners? <laughs> like, I don't have to have my own kids to know know which one of these ones is an asshole. Donnie, you're done. You're out. Get out of here. Yeah. I understand as the townspeople going, 
uh, fuck yes, we have a vote because he's threatening to kill all of us. So right. of course we should have a vote. You know, it's my neck on the line too. That whole sequence is is fascinating, and and not just because of uh, what we've already discussed, but like we we mentioned this one really interesting thing about the ambiguity of was there a right answer out of there, and I love that Linoge gives them. Uh, essentially the the twist of the knife at the end when he's walking away with Ralphie and, and he was just like, pretty much said, you guys talked yourselves into this. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, you didn't really have to do this. You know, he, he gives yeah. a little hint that it's like, you didn't have to do it this way, but you know, this is how it worked out and I got what I wanted. You know, it's like, I, I love that. And I, because you're right, it underlines that um, Mike Anderson was right, that the the way to beat him was to unify. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole the whole thing is about how this, island community can bond together and and uh, uh hide a secret or whatever you know they even name check the dolores claiborne yeah. you know uh, uh death of her husband and like all this stuff and he says that's why he chose the island but that's what their strength was too is they could have bonded as a community and stood up to this threat and i i'm with you meredith i think that if they had done that then then his bluff would have been called essentially yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. and i think that's so interesting and i, I think there's another time in the in the series that the writers kind of, you know, Stephen King kind of hammers that home to make sure we know it. And it's when Mike's friend Hatch comes and sees him at the end, right. As he's about to leave. And he's like, would it make any difference if I told you, I think we were wrong. It's like, right. Hatch is another character that, you know, he seems like a good guy. We're like taught to, to like him. He's one of the, do we, do we see a secret for Hatch? I don't know that we do. Or if we do, it's certainly not as shocking as a hate crime. I don't um, think so. I don't remember it. Yeah, I don't, yeah, think, I don't think so. Um, so, we're, so we're in, intended <clears throat> to like him. We're intended to believe that he's a, a good person. And, and he's he's the one that isn't getting any sleep since this happened. He's the one that lies awake realizing that they were wrong and, and Mike was right. And if they had banded together, then Linoj would have been shit out of luck, basically. Yeah. Well, and he the, the community doesn't walk into the sea at the end, but... But their their choices like have a deep effect. Like every everybody is is broken in some way by making this wrong moral choice. There's some people that kill themselves later. There's some people that you know become super sick. There's a lot of rep- repercussions for what they've done. And um, you know, I don't know. That's all very interesting to me. And that's like that's kind of why I like Mike Anderson, like bringing all the biblical shit into it. Because not only is he the constable and like the guiding light, he also knows the Bible better than the priest. You I know, know exactly. <laughs> It's, it's a, a very stuff. biblical story. Like it is. it's it's it's, oh, sure. it's super biblical with a little bit of Shirley Jackson and maybe a little high noon thrown in mm-hmm. there at the end too. Can I say, uh, and this is going to be some petty shit, but I <laughs> yes. I totally agree with you, Eric, that many of the townspeople kind of suffered in different ways. I get really pissed that Molly didn't. <laughs> I'm just, Molly, I think she's a piece of shit. Like, like I said, from the very first scene where she calls her extremely busy husband home to help with this like non-issue. But then also, you know, she votes against him, which I think there's one thing to stand with the community and there's something else to stand with your family. Mm-hmm. The fact that she doesn't stand with her family, it's like, sure, you're your own person. You can make your own choice. But then that she throws this huge fit when it ends up being Ralphie. And it's like, yeah, bitch, like, that's on you. And yeah. then... At the end, she has the happiest ending of anyone. She ends up married to Hatch, and you know she's, <laughs> she's she's got a kid now. Pip is her kid. I think I don't know. I really want her punished in a way, and I know that's horrible and and not really a, like a you know good way to feel about anybody. But I I do get really angry that she sort of escapes unscathed in a way that nobody else who went through this does. I think that's fair. I think it's entirely fair. Okay, thank you. Um, 
one thing I would like to add, uh, I like that I like that it takes place on Little Tall Island. I'm not a huge fan of Dolores Claiborne, but uh, I do like that connective tissue that that King works in there. But mostly, what re rewatching this reminded me is that I would really like to live on an in, like in an island community. I think this shit seems cool as hell. Like you're you're remote. You know, I like the idea of being remote first of all. You know, like hard to reach. I like the idea they're like everything you need is within what, like a 10 mile radius, probably. I'm not terribly interested in the idea of everyone knowing my business, but also like, I think there's something kind of cool to that. You know, there would be an actual community there. This is a thing that occurs to me every time I, I read a thing that takes place on an island or I see a movie that where there's like an island community. I feel like jealous of that. <laughs> like, they're they're experiencing a sort of way of life that I will never know, and I I, I think I would really enjoy that. Um, I totally get that, and also King speaks to it in the intro to the screenplay, where he says that so many of his stories, of course, take place in Maine, where he's lived his entire life. So there's an authenticity there, but he he finds island life really compelling. But he's writing about it as an outsider because he's always been a mainlander. Which I think is you know how would we know? But it does seem to have this like really deep compelling authenticity to it. And then especially in Storm of the Century, there's just something, even during the storm, as you're watching sort of the lighthouse fall down, which is really striking and beautiful, the way everyone went outside together to watch that happen, because here's this sort of like, and of course yeah. it sort of represents the like fall of humanity for little tall islanders. But, you know, it's this, this beacon, this sort of symbol that all of them have grown up just seen in their everyday life. It's been in the backdrop for so long. And even though there's this horrible storm going on, plus all the shit with Linoge, they still take a moment to go outside and witness that fall together in a way that I think is really beautiful. Yeah. Do you think you would enjoy living on an island? I think I would very much enjoy living on a cold island. I, I don't like to be hot. I don't like, uh, huh. I, I love cold beaches, which is the reason um, that I, I find Maine very attractive. Because <laughs> um, I love, you know, I love the ocean. I love islands, but you know, I, I don't like the sun very much. And so I feel like Little Tall Island would be the place for me. Yeah, I agree with that. My favorite movies when I was a kid were Jaws and Pete's Dragon. Yeah. So like the just the whole idea of, of like in being in a, like a, a northeastern island community has been like ingrained in me since I was a kid. Right. Yes. There's probably like three kinds of people. There's people that would absolutely never live on an island. There's people that are very intrigued by the idea of living on an island. But then... The, the smallest percentage is at the very top. And that's people that had the nerve and the balls to go live on a fucking island. How dare <laughs> they, think, honestly. You know? And I don't count New York City. You know, Manhattan Island does not count. I'm talking about like a, a thing where conceivably you could run from one end to the other within 20 <laughs> minutes. Is the mist on an island? I can't, I can't remember now. No, no, no. Okay. I love that Jeffrey DeMunn is in this. And of course he's also in the mist and in Shawshank Redemption. And, you know, he's, he's like clearly a Darabont guy. Yeah. Uh, but it's really interesting to me that he's always in all of these Stephen King stories and he plays that sort of quintessential main guy, but he's, yep. he's from like New York. He's not from yep. Maine at all, but I love that he's built a career for himself being, you know, the guy that you cast in a main production. And it's like, that's, I don't know how he did that, but he does it very well. He's perfect. It's the in that world. He's it's perfect. The yeah, he's so good at it. And you know, he's such a pain in the ass in this. But his <laughs> his journey is really interesting because he starts out this sort of nosy Nelly, like, you know, in everyone's business and, and trying to do Mike's job for him. 
And at the end, there's a lot of sort of pathos with with the way that he's addressing the community that I think speaks to what you were saying, Scott, about just this like tight knit island family. In mm-hmm. that, even though he's sort of a pain in the ass and no one really seems to like him very much, they do respect him and he speaks to them like they are a family at the end when they have this horrible choice to make. He, I, I think his performance is really, really interesting, especially in those scenes because he's he's not blustery, he's not blowhardy, he's not trying to like say, this is definitely what we should do. He's just really plainly speaking out the facts and saying, let's figure this out together. No, he's just a straight up dude. Yeah. Jeffrey DeMunn in every Stephen King story is like the guy <laughs> who like if he walked out of a Denny's and saw you had a flat tire, he would help you change it. You know and what I'm would, saying? Yeah. And he'd like probably give you shit for like having, you know, cheap tires or whatever. He would annoy you the entire time, but he would help you. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like just a salt of the earth kind of good, like a solid guy. Yeah. You know, I mentioned this at the top of the episode, but I before we wrap up, I think we should address it. The makeup. We we need to talk about the old man wizard makeup. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not great. It's, I'm gonna pull up a photo because I want to refer to this <laughs> old man Laneige. Yeah, I love the idea behind it, where he goes, "Yeah, all the this kind of intimidating prime of his life guy that you've seen. This is what I really am." Mm-hmm. You know, and and the way he that he shows it to make his point to to show that he is not. He's not going to like eat the whatever child, you know, it is like, I'm not here to, to kill your children, but look, I'm an old man. This is what I really am. I've been here for eons. I may look immortal to you, but I'm not. When I leave, I want an heir. That's what I'm here for. Cool idea, cool setup, but he, he looks like, you know, I don't know, a Johnny Knoxville, you know, dressing up as an old man. And it looks like the emperor from fucking Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. And yeah, then also the, the, Children flying with him. Those are the two sort of visual moments that really don't work for me in this. Um, it just looks corny. It looks silly. It doesn't look scary at all. You know, it's the most uh, McGarrish shining <laughs> ridiculousness <laughs> that shows up in the movie. Oh, you're sure. talking about the McGarrish shot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is unfortunate. Uh, but it, it is. I mean, that's you know the limits of technology at the time. I'm sure these days, if they did it, it would look fantastic. James Cameron could yeah. probably do a knock-up job on that, but uh, for sure he'd be all. Doesn't blue. look so yeah. great in the. Oh yeah, he looks ridiculous. I'm looking at these photos. Yeah, how it's, do you it's guys, real bad. How do you guys feel about the newscaster and the nightmare? That's that's interesting because that's also Colmfior and, right. and makeup, right? And it's uh, I it, listen. The makeup doesn't hold up, but I again I love the idea. I love that he is in there, but not obviously himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I just wish the makeup was a little bit better. I mean, this thing had a pretty high budget. I think. I think I looked it up, and it was like thirty-five million. Yeah. Or thirty-five mil. Well, and with it being a nightmare, I don't mind so much the the shitty makeup for for the newscaster because right. your brain does strange things when when you're asleep, and it can it does look just sort of left of correct in a way that works fine in a dream world, but does not work fine when like waking events are unfolding. Yeah, I'm about. I'm I'm where Eric's at on that one. I love the, the the nightmare sequence, you know, because it's something that more than anything else he does that proves to the town that he's all powerful, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. You know, to to kind of sell his bluff mm-hmm. is that if he could give them feed them visions of walking them two by two, holding their children, screaming and plunging into the ocean, if he can do that and everybody shares in that vision, what you know, what are the limits to his powers? And like, you know, I love it for multiple reasons because then it also 
gives the townspeople whatever justification they need to uh-huh. make the the coward choice and um it is definitely the the thing that kind of elevates it past this is just a guy that you know has weird like psychic powers or whatever for them yeah it takes it past the sort of needful things of it into something for sure. very other uh, and I don't really get the sense, but I, I'm curious if you two will weigh in on it, that he actually is responsible for Roanoke. That feels like part of the bluff. But what do you think? Yeah, I think he was. Well, that's interesting, because then that means that he does have, I guess maybe if Roanoke didn't like stand against them, but it means he does have the, the power to do that if he wants to. Yeah, I, you're right. I, I think what it what it is is that he's making a semi bluff, as they say in poker. You know, where he if they don't play play it right, of course he can make them do whatever you know that he's threatening. But uh, yeah, no, I read it as as him being responsible for Roanoke disappearing, whether or not it happened in the way he said. I don't know. That's very interesting. Well, do we have any uh, do we have any final thoughts? Any any wrap up thoughts on uh, Storm of the Century? I think we covered uh, all of my favorite parts and least favorite parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed this rewatch. I mean, like I, I said to, to you two when pitching it that I, I rewatch it about once a year, but I think watching it this time in sort of an academic way, understanding that I'd be speaking about it with you, it sort of opened it up for me and, and made me realize that I think this is honestly one of the best things Stephen King has written, uh, or it's like, you know, mm-hmm. in the upper echelon of his, of his work because he really goes to some places he doesn't always go. He explores some some darkness, but from a really thoughtful and surprising perspective. I don't know, I really dig it. Right on. Now this well, is usually you so the much. well. Hold on. Now this is usually the oh, point show where we uh, we invite our guests to to tell us what they're working on and, and plug whatever they have coming up. Meredith, I don't know if you heard about this, but there was a big kerfuffle with Fangoria. Not long ago, <laughs> mm. and I, their owners. Did and I understand? That. Yeah, yeah, it, it made its way to me as well. Tell us about the new owner. Okay, so um, I'm the managing editor of Fangoria, as you said at the beginning of the hour. We were recently purchased by Tara Ansley, who is a producer of films like Tragedy Girls, which I love, and entrepreneur Abby Gole. And they, uh, they're doing really cool stuff. They brought on the same editorial team, which, of course, Phil Noble Jr. and I feel very lucky. Um, same art director, our same, um, Ashley Detmarine, and our same associate publisher, Jessica Safazinaire. So it's the same team that's been doing Fango since the beginning of the relaunch, and we really love doing it. We're so excited. So, uh, yeah, you can subscribe at Fangoria.com. If you don't get the October issue, no sweat. We're quarterly. Uh, the next one will come out in January. And, yeah, I think we're doing good stuff. Um, it's all print. It's not available digitally. It's a really beautiful, collectible magazine, and I'm extremely proud and happy to work for it. It's great. It's great. Everything that new Fango is doing, uh, I'm a big fan of. And, you know, of course, I'm going to say this because I was tangentially uh, re- related to that, uh, all that, that shit storm that went down. But I'm so proud of you guys and happy that you're you're getting to continue uh, under new leadership. I, Thank I'm, you. I'm very glad they, they maintained y'all. Yeah, we're extremely lucky. And, uh, oh, our October issue has a, a byline by one Mr. Scott Wampler. You want to uh, talk about what you're doing there? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I, I guess this will have aired by the t- time. I don't want Phil to yell at me. 
I won't let Phil yell at you. He doesn't listen to this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm interviewing. Uh, <laughs> that's tr- that's true. I tried to get him on the show, and he's like, well, "I don't like doing podcasts because blah blah blah." And then he's like, "This motherfucker's on like eight James Bond casts." I know he doesn't like, like doing podcasts about anything other than James Bond. <laughs> yeah, motherfucker. Anyway, he, so he was. Uh, Phil brought me in to interview Brandon Cronenberg about uh, Possessor. I spoke with him like last week, and in fact, I have a due date on that this Friday. You do. You could turn that in to me in a couple of days. I'm, I'm excited to read. <laughs> uh, what day is it? <laughs> Don't worry about that. <laughs> okay. No worries whatsoever. Uh, well, we're we're glad to have you back. I think the horror community is glad to have Fango continuing with, with y'all at the helm, and, and we thank you very much for being here today. Thank you guys so much for having me. This this was a dream come true. I, I hope that um, you continue to do great work with KingCast. I'm absolutely loving the podcast. I think it's it's really, really cool to hear the King perspective from two people that are basically my favorite writers about King uh, on the internet. Aww. So thank you so Aww, much for doing thank you this. Very it's, much. it's a delight. Many thanks to Miss Meredith Borders for reintroducing us to Storm of the Century. I, I know this is one of those titles, and I said it on the show, so I'm repeating myself, but uh, it's one of the titles I'm, I was really happy to revisit. And a title people have been asking us to do since the uh, since the launch of this show. So we got yeah, it we're out of our lately's on this one. That's Everybody true. else knew how good it was, and we were just like, oh, it was that TV thing. I saw some people asking on Twitter where they could find it. I, I don't think it's streaming anywhere. We had to buy it on DVD or some shit, right? Yeah, this is like months ago that we recorded this one. So the world has moved on, (laughs) but it's out there, but it's out there. So we have uh, our housekeeping now. This is where we usually tease what the title is or not tease. We just flat out tell you what the title is Mm -hmm. uh, and give you a chance to read up on it. We're not going to do that this week. Um, Tell them why, Eric, for a very good reason. Because we don't know what the title is going to be. <laughs> we haven't recorded next week's episode yet, and we're still waiting to hear on uh, what the title is. What we can tell you is that there is for sure going to be some stand-related talk in this episode. Yes. So we can't tell you what the title of the book is because we don't know it, but we can tell you that somebody involved in and around the world of the stand will be on the show. If this one bottoms out for some reason, we're going to have to we're going to have to edit another episode real quick. So uh, don't hold us to this. We think it's going to work, but just in case, don't take that as the gospel truth. Probably true. This will be the first time in KingCast history where we don't know exactly what's going up next week. Yeah, we've got our schedule made into February. We've got this fucker well-planned, but not this specific episode. And this Friday on the KingCast Patreon, we have a very special bonus episode. I did a fun thing where, well, the, the episode is Stephen King trivia. And the idea was to pit Eric and I against one another in this, but I didn't want Eric to have an unfair advantage in being able to prepare for this because even if I was given that advantage, I would be lazy and not do it. So then he would obviously have the upper hand. So what I did was we brought in uh, Brian Collins, a former writer at uh, Birth Movies Death, and uh, the man has a uh, encyclopedic knowledge of movies and is just a huge nerd for trivia games. I asked him to come onto the show, record an episode with us and, and pit us against one of each other with a number of Stephen Queen questions. And Eric wouldn't know about it before time. So you're going to get to hear him on the air, find out what we're doing on this recording. And then you get to find out if all my efforts were for nothing and he beat me anyway. It's good times. So if you're not already subscribed to the Patreon, go to patreon.com backslash the King get signed up today. You'll get access to 
all of the commentaries we've done, all the bonus episodes we've done and have not released on the main feed and some fun, weird shit, you know, like a Stephen King trivia game where we're <laughs> battling one another. I think that's it. All right. Well, we'll see you next week for a title that I guess we will all find out together. <laughs> we're excited to find out as much as you are. See you next week. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>